Welcome to the Politics and Public Finance Podcast, in-depth conversations that bring unique insights into the nexus between how governments manage our finances and the work of elective representative bodies such as parliaments. You're listening to Politics and Public Finance Podcast with Jeff Dubrow. Welcome to episode 16 of Politics and Public Finance. Feels like yesterday I was sitting there wondering how I was going to get this show going. Then I found Taz, wonderful podcast producer at Huge Impact Marketing, and the rest is history. Uh, We're up to episode number 16. A really fascinating guest today, Don Bowser, uh, who has been across Ukraine supporting the country Uh, pretty much since the beginning of the Russian invasion. He is a Canadian living in the same province as myself. I'm here in New Brunswick. Uh, He's just returned from Ukraine and has uh, amazing perspectives to share. So let's get right to the interview with Don Bowser. Don Bowser, welcome back to Canada. Great to have you back in one piece. Great, thanks, Jeff. How was your trip to Ukraine? Tell us all about it. Uh, well, which trip? Uh, I've uh, left Canada in the second week of the war in, in early March uh, and deployed myself to the Polish-Ukrainian border. Um, the first week was involving some rescue missions, and then for the next four months I was delivering non-lethal military supplies to special forces units inside Ukraine. So basically procuring and then hand-delivering the, the equipment uh, to, to specific units. Uh, and then for the last couple of months, I've been focused very much on helping frontline communities do early recovery work that are recently liberated uh, in the Chernigov area, Kharkiv, and we've been looking at uh, the Kiev region as well. So it's been very different experiences in all of those. Um, uh, when I first went in, it was the end of March. Um, so the city still had some uh, active fighting, but Russian forces were withdrawing. Um, so it was very much a different place. It was an armed camp in which your documents were checked at every corner. I was detained once uh, by the intelligence service for simply photographing the building in which I used to live. Um, so you very much felt that, uh, and the city was empty, and so you very much felt the, the war. Fast forward a couple of months later, and it's uh, hipsters on e-scooters riding around, going to their favorite cafes and hanging out, and you wouldn't know that the war was on. Um, so very different experiences in terms of where you are, how close to the, the line of contact you are, and things like that. That's, that's incredible. Um, and and you're, you, you, so you feel a lightness in, in Kiev, in the capital, uh, more recently, uh, now that I guess the, the Russians have never, never made it to Kiev, um, you feel sort of a more lightness of being there in that city? Well, even after, you know, even in, in, in the later part of April, you, you wouldn't feel that the war was on at all, except for the air raids. Um, so we've had a couple of missile strikes. Um, so me and the, the, the whole family moved there um, for the last couple of months. And except for the occasional air raid alert and things like that and the precautions that you need to take, um, you don't really feel that, uh, that the war is touching you. But then you go to a place like Kharkiv, which is under daily rocket attack, and the outlying communities, which are under artillery attacks, 
and which a number of times we tried to enter communities but were turned back at checkpoints simply because it was too dangerous. Um, so you would come in just after the artillery had ended and you, there's still buildings burning and, uh, and, and rubble smoldering in certain places. So there are many different realities. There are some communities which have never been hit, um, some now only because the infrastructure is being targeted by, by the Russians, that you, that you feel it. But there are, uh, it, it's not like in any other war, and this is my fifth war, is that uh, it's not uh, all war all the time everywhere. And so it's very different experiences in terms of where you are and how close you are um, to the line of contact. Uh, in the case of Ukraine, there is no real safe places except for Chernovsky, which has never been hit. Um, outside of that, every community has had some sort of level of attack but the realities are very different. How did you decide, I mean, you were all over the country. Every time I would check Facebook, you would be in a different spot. And I'm obviously not asking you to reveal your uh, positions, but how did you decide where to, where to travel and when? Uh, well, it's dictated by the operational needs. Um, no, I, I have no problem telling where I've been. Uh, I just never would reveal where I was uh, at a specific right. time. After you leave a location, right. you're fine to disclose. And I know a lot of people, uh, you'd ask them where they are, and they would say, I can't tell you it's operational security, which is nonsense. Once you've left a location, then there is no physical danger to you in revealing where you were. Um, so that's how you can spot the people who are pretending, um, <laughs> the live action role players, we call them, the LARPers, who go, walk around in Kiev dressed up in uniform. And when you ask them where they were or where they saw action, they told you they couldn't tell you. And then you'd sit in a bar with the guys who have been right. fighting for the last five months, and they're eagerly exchanging uh, Google Maps positions of where, where their, their trenches had been and things like that. So uh, how did I decide? Well, I mean, the, it's just what's needed. So I was procuring and delivering directly to military units. Um, so you basically have to either drop things off on the other side of the border or in Lviv, uh, depending if the driver was available to take it forward. Or if it was sensitive equipment, then you have to hand deliver it yourself, which means going the, the journey into Kiev, uh, usually. Um, but the rest of my work in terms of doing frontline communities is going where the need is the most. And currently that need is outside of Kiev region, mostly in Chernigov and Kharkiv especially. And now it'll be further south in the Kharkiv region uh, that have been just recently liberated. So it's going, going where the need is. What was the morale like there in, in, in Kharkiv and uh, in the environs? depends where. I mean, the morale uh, in the communities that are getting shelled, who do you see left? It's people who have no place to go. So you would meet with mostly elderly people who didn't have any place to go, didn't want to, to escape to Leave another home, country yeah. in Western Ukraine. So um, morale universally is high. Um, nobody is willing to make any compromises. With, uh, with the occupying forces. So now really the, uh, the uh, basic attitude is we have to finish this war. Um, so, you know, rarely do you talk to people who are suffering sort of any sort of uh, major depression or anything else. It's more anger than anything that's driving people. 
uh, in a lot of places. The further you get away from the line of contact, the difference the attitudes are. Uh, I mean, it's been six months now, so people have suspended their lives and, and to do everything. And the relief efforts are largely being driven by Ukrainian volunteers. So it's Ukrainians who are delivering the assistance that people need. The international organizations are, have been extremely slow and still after six months are very much inefficient in terms of their deliveries. So um, most people are not depending on the international community. In fact, there's a lot of animosity towards the international community and why this conflict is so unique that they cannot perform the functions that they perform in other places. Um, you have floods in, in Pakistan the next day they're out there. Uh, you have a war in Afghanistan, yet people can deploy in Afghanistan. But for some reason, uniquely in the case of Ukraine, um, the international organizations have been so risk adverse and unable to field themselves, especially in the forward positions. What, what are the one or two things that really struck you during your, your, your visit to Ukraine? And I realize you were there for a long time and you've got a contrast between the beginning of the war when, you know, I guess there was a sentiment that um, Russia was going to quickly overtake the country to, to, to now where there's some jubilation. But what are some of the key things you bring back where you just say, I really didn't see that coming or that really shocked me? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, after you've been in, in a conflict, I mean, there's, the, you know, most conflicts are fairly similar in terms of how horrid they are. Uh, what was surprising? Uh, again, the most surprising thing is that immediately, as soon as the danger's gone, people just forget there's a war on. That struck me the most. Uh, I remember the first time I went into Lviv and people were just dancing on the streets and enjoying themselves and whatever else. And that incredible amount of anger you have is that they just don't seem to understand that uh, people are dying on the front lines. Uh, and it was exactly the same situation in 2014, 2015, 2016. Yeah. Conflict was on and nobody seemed to know. Later on in the conflict, it's clear it's dragged on for a long time. People tend to forget. But when it was still hot, um, it was the same. Uh, Kiev didn't know that there was fighting in the East. And so you see th this contrast between um, people who are living under daily uh, indirect fire attacks and the randomness also of it. So you go to a place like Irpin and Butcher and one apartment is completely fine. The next apartment got a missile strike and is completely burnt out. Um, so that randomness of just being in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, struck me about how um, people could be living in, the, in their apartment and next door there's nothing. Um, uh, the resilience, of course, of Ukrainians and being able to go back and putting back their lives. And that's what they want the most is just to be able to provide for themselves because the international community has failed in terms of delivering uh, sufficient humanitarian aid. Most people understand that they need to provide for themselves. So that means that they need to be able to go back to work and they need to be able to earn an income. There's plenty of food in Ukraine, um, but it costs. Um, so you need to have some sort of income to be able to afford afford it. Uh, it's going to be very difficult this winter in terms of heating, but in terms of um, other things, people really just need to go back to uh, earning their own keep and they want to rebuild their lives. And that resiliency is extremely striking. I look at how much Canada fell apart uh, during a simple thing like the pandemic, uh, in which people were so terrified and, and still the, the fear that they have now and you compare that to the 90-year-old uh, grandmother who is uh, on the front lines and 
and how to give and just going about our daily life? Well, it's all relative. Um, you know, I, we all have, uh, we can only deal with the reality that we live in. But I think one of the stories that seem maybe is a story that didn't really make the news out here in Canada or, or in the West was the, the story of the humanitarian aid. Because, of course, we know the saga or the story of the military aid, that it was slow in coming, but that Ukraine has received um, new weapons, including HIMARS, which have really helped them to, to turn the tide. But... Uh, from what I'm here, this is the first I hear that the humanitarian aid that was required to help Ukraine um, cope with the uh, the war situation wasn't uh, wasn't provided in a timely manner. Uh, no, it's been discussed many, many times. Um, it's just people don't like to tell that bad news story. Um, but the fact is, the Ukrainians have reported on it ex the, extremely often. Everybody else who's been there. So for the first three months of the war, you did not see any international organizations outside of World Central Kitchen and some of the faith-based organizations like Caritas. Those are the only people, not even on the Polish border, could somehow uh, international NGOs and the international community, including the Red Cross and the UN, seem to be able to deploy themselves. Uh, UNHCR, for example, in the largest crossing point at Medica had an empty tent which I photographed, there was nothing inside it. Uh, so you would see refugees coming in and they would simply pass through this. But when there was a photo opportunity, that was the one that was, pictures were taken. So people have reported on it. Um, but uh, the, the problem with the, most of the Western news agencies is that they, of course, have to give you know, uh, people a chance to present their view. And there was always a litany of excuses. But there's a very good report out by an, uh, a British NGO called Humanitarian Outcomes that details exactly how much assistance was given. Um, Ukrainian organizations did uh, the bulk of the humanitarian assistance and they received less than 1% of the funding available. So it's all detailed. Uh, everybody's knowing it. The international organizations knew it. And that's why they were in a huge panic because their delivery rates are so low and the money that they've collected. So I've detailed it on every single uh, media uh, event that I've done. I can't even remember how many times I've been on the media in the last six months, maybe 50 times. Uh, and I always detail it. Um, and many of the other people who are on the ground detail it. But and you started your own, your own recovery organization. Yeah. So that's why we shouldn't be doing this. So I teamed up together with the former deputy governor, first deputy governor of Donetsk region, Yegeny Vilinsky, and I, we formed an organization to start to do early recovery work simply because it wasn't being done. So now the humanitarian aid machine is running, but it comes in insufficient quantities and irregularly. Um, so the real need now is in terms of getting early recovery and stabilization. This is the work that should be done by big organizations, um, but it wasn't being done. So myself and somebody who uh, ran Donetsk region for the first five years of the war teamed up uh, simply because we knew that this needed to be done and somebody needed to do it. Uh, it's been incredibly hard to get funding because the choice for most funders is to give it to already existing big organizations, sure. Sure. regardless of their ability to deliver. So Ukrainian organizations, which are small, uh, most of them recently established because there wasn't a large need for humanitarian organizations in Ukraine yeah. um, are newly established and they uh, haven't been able to access the funds which go to large organizations who are simply sitting on the resources. 
How um, do you measure the 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 sorry to interrupt Don? How do you how do you measure the extent of the humanitarian catastrophe or uh, situation if it's not a catastrophe uh, that's currently uh, playing there? How do you mix sort of the war situation with uh, the, the, the 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 lack of food and uh, the destruction that's taken place? Well, there's different ways. Both the World Bank are working on this and the Kiev School of Economics in terms of measuring the actual physical destruction to buildings within it, uh, right? So right now we're about 50 billion mark uh, in terms of immediate uh, repairs and things that need to be done. There's a much greater dimension to this that's, that's going to blow up. And we're looking at uh, the Ukrainian government predicts about 700 billion is needed to fully recover uh, at the moment. Um, so there are ways to measure this. There's ways to measure needs. We do our own needs assessment. So we developed our own methodology in terms of how we do that, doing key informant interviews and, and things like that in terms of getting people to um, tell exactly what their needs are. And that's been one of the problems as well is that people come in with preset concepts that this is allowable or this is not allowable or this is what we need to do. So, for example, in, in some of the towns around Kharkiv, they were getting um, supplies delivered for five-member families, including small children. Well, small children are not there. There are very few of the families that are five people, right? So mm -hmm. what you have is not the quantity or the products necessary because nobody's done a needs assessment, they just do their standard off-the-shelf things and deliver whatever they have uh, instead of what is needed. So there isn't an effective needs assessment system in place. Local communities themselves are not prepared for this. Mm -hmm. This is why we tried to bring the experience of Lugansk and Donetsk regions that did this for eight years. Um, but it's been extremely difficult to, to, to make other regions understand that that experience is directly relevant to what they're going through, because that's the way it was in the first eight years of the war. But what examples of human suffering did you witness that really strike you? Um... Well, a lot of people have been killed. Uh, the smell of uh, burnt human flesh and decaying bodies under rubble is not something that you easily forget. Um, no. the, the, the towns outside of... Kiev that, uh, that were devastated, the towns outside of Kharkiv and around, which are devastated, and the level of, uh, of terror that has gone on under occupation. Everybody's focused on a place like Bucha. Bucha is minor in comparison to what we're going to find in some of the other occupied communities that were occupied for six months. So the endless list of uh, war crimes and what cluster munitions do to uh, any inhabited space or a place like Saltiv outside of Kharkiv, which was one of the biggest, densest populated communities in Ukraine and is completely uh, devastated by um, endless rounds of artillery and cluster munitions coming in. Um, so, I mean, that level of destruction to see in the 21st century, and this is nothing uh, like Afghanistan or Iraq or anywhere else, uh, our collective experience uh, for the last uh, last 75 years uh, pales in comparison to the level of destruction that's going on in Ukraine. Do you have any estimate of the the number of civilian deaths in Ukraine? 
since the Russian invasion uh, on February 24th of this year? No, there's a lot of numbers that have been bandied around. The problem is that the people like the organization Truth Hounds, which does this uh, documentation of war crimes, uh, are so completely underfunded and undermanned um, that they have a real problem keeping accurate counts of this. The Ukrainian government has put out numbers, but they themselves don't have the ability to go into occupied territories uh, to have any sort of accurate. It's only now that we see in Mariupol you start to get numbers. So in Mariupol, at least one-tenth of the population um, has been killed. So you're looking at 50,000 there. So probably across the country, we're going to see several hundred thousand people have been killed. There are numbers that are published by the prosecutor's office in Ukraine and other people, but the level of accuracy of these uh, right now is very difficult simply because you have to have access to be able to understand. Uh, in terms of the Ukrainian losses uh, in, uh, in the armed forces, uh, it's very high. Uh, and this has been a tremendously uh, horrific uh, casualty rate over the last uh, three months. And when you include the armed forces, are you talking about civilians who have taken up arms as well? Are you including those in the calculation? No, there's not really that civilians. I mean, in the early days in the defense of Kiev, you know, uh, people okay. were given given guns to defend, but everybody else, Ukraine now has a one million uh, person army. Um, so it's a uh, it's about one million, about fifty thousand of those are are women that are currently on the front lines. So you're looking at one million people. I mean, it's people who have volunteered, um, but everybody is legitimately within the armed forces. There are a number of illegally armed see, groups that are cooperating, um, but those are mostly driven from foreigners. Uh, several of them are still quasi under state control, um, but there are a number of non-state um, groups. But outside of that, it's the armed forces of Ukraine, and they're the ones that are fighting. They are the ones that are paying the price. I mean, a lot of talk has been simply because the Ukrainians don't want to reveal their losses too much and they don't want to reveal operational sure. needs is that there's been a huge amount of focus on Western weapons and, and Westerners who are fighting. But the reality is, is the Ukrainian show. The Russian army was defeated in March by Ukrainians in Kiev without any largely Western weapons except for javelins that had been delivered. That was it. So everything else since then, all of these uh, wonder weapons that have been delivered are great. They help. But it's very small scale, right? HIMARS is what, maybe maybe 30 uh, at, at most that are deployed uh, out of a million-person army. So this is largely and predominantly a Ukrainian fight. Um, and it's just that the Western assistant gets a lot of attention, but that's not the reality on the ground. How old was, how large was the army on February 24th? You said it's up to it was a about, people now. Yeah, it was about 200,000. How on earth can you mobilize an army like that, um, you know, even over a six-month period? Isn't that probably unprecedented in the world? Yes, uh, and this is why when people talk about the supply chain issues and stuff, there are a lot of problems in terms of the supply chain. But the reality is, is why volunteers like myself had to deliver uh, is the fact that doing this would be beyond the operational capacity. Uh, Canada had a hard time equipping our army with a, with a dozen inflatable boats. Um, so then you look at the ability to, to clothe, arm, um, 800,000 uh, new troops in the last little while. So it has been uh, a lot of friends, families, and everything else. I can tell you in the 
first couple of months of the war, Europe was picked clean in terms of body armor, uh, uniforms, mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot of driving all over the place or waiting to hear that somebody just got a shipment yesterday and then driving up and immediately snapping it up. Um, people have started to make their own. We looked at producing uniforms in the quantities. And so when I was talking to, to some Danish uh, organization that wanted to volunteer, I said, we need meals ready to eat. They said, how many? And I said, well, they need a million a day. <laughs> That's the reality. Uh, and then people just hear that and they're just completely staggered by this because the logistics amount that is needed uh, is, uh, was a huge effort. And there's been a lot of people behind the scenes that are unsung heroes in terms of delivering this. What was the what has the performance of the Ukrainian government been like? Um, you know, certainly in terms of the messaging and the morale boosting from President Zelensky, I, I think that's quite clear that it's uh, there's been a pretty stark contrast to the sort of tired, staid um, propaganda coming from Vladimir Putin. But but in terms of the performance, in terms of its ability to uh, help the population um, during this difficult time, how how is how is that? performance been? Well, the helping the population largely depends on the local government. So you're talking about the quality of the municipal and regional authorities to be able to deliver in certain places. Okay. The fact is uh, the Sluga Naroda party, the servant of the people party, um, was a new political party. So the amount of resources in terms of people that they had at their disposal to be able to mobilize at the start of the war was fairly limited. Unlike established political parties who have a huge basis of uh, people within the organization that can, they can call on. And this is why we saw a number of people who had been appointed by the government turned out to be traitors like down in Hiroshima and stuff like that. Because uh, the, the fact is, is that the bodies that the, that the Zelensky government could call on were not as extensive uh, as a political party that has been around for 30 years would be. So one of the problems in terms of the human resources has been able to also ramp up the efforts. Also, they're very limited in terms of their budget. So in terms of the performance of the government, in terms of the government uh, being able to run a fantastic, unprecedented PR campaign, absolutely, uh, absolutely amazing. In terms of um, things like preparing the education system to go back to school, when your country's still under attack, that's been very difficult. And one yes. of the reasons why is because the depth of people, new people within the ministry, right? So the problem is if you don't have a lot of experienced hands who have been through a number of crises dealing with this, whether it be health or education or things like that, or would tax any government. Uh, I don't know how the Canadian government would react in a situation like this. Mm -hmm. If you're largely focused on PR efforts and things like that, um, when it comes down to an actual real crisis in which you need top-notch managers who are able to deliver, uh, it becomes then, then very problematic. I mean, some point down the road, yes, this will be studied as a, somebody to do an analysis of uh, effectiveness of public administration of Ukraine, um, but right now... I I think it's a bit early to do <laughs> evaluations or functional reviews. Uh, fact is, they're still around. So, you know, they, they win this one in terms of looking like a, a functional government and an effective government in comparison 
to uh, to what went on. And this is why when you look at Russia, my predictions before the invasion happened is that the invasion wouldn't happen because Russia didn't have the logistics and administrative capacity to undertake a large-scale war, which has proven exactly true, right? So um, the, the, the whole issue right now is that Ukraine's administration has been able to deliver and defend the country, so already um, they're, they're, they've been stellar. Well, you've made the segue into Russia, so let's, let's keep that going. Uh, former U.S. Ambassador Michael McFaul uh, commenting on the, the recent um, uh, retreat of, of Russians in Kharkiv uh, and elsewhere said that this is the end of Putinism. Uh, I'm not going to pretend that this is as simple an issue as, as that, but I'd like to sort of make that our launching point into our conversation. Well, when you look at the history of authoritarian regimes when they lose a war, usually ends up with the leader being, you know, either in a spider hole or uh, hung by his boots. Usually it doesn't go very well. When your legitimacy is based on being a strong man and you're proved to be incredibly weak, how does that story usually end? Yep. Is there any resiliency in terms of the ability of the Russian government to survive this? No, because it's a brittle regime. So one strong hit like this, and we saw it exactly in the Soviet system, the loss of the war in Afghanistan was a great accelerator for the breakup of the Soviet Union because it just showed the level of incompetency. Putin's legitimacy has been based on stability. Russia is no longer a stable place. So the idea is that you give us your freedoms and we will make sure that you're safe, secure, and you have enough lattes to keep you going. Um, doesn't happen when the Starbucks is closed and you get the rotten burgers from the fake McDonald's and everything else. So the <laughs> right. problem is now is that economic performance isn't there to create uh, any sort of illusion that the country is going well. Um, so the fact is, is that Putin's entire program, Putinism, has always been based on the fact of giving up civil liberties in exchange for some level of economic and, uh, and security performance. And both of those are now down the toilet. Well, that was the old Sylvia social compact, too, right? Yeah, well, largely, yeah. except they didn't yeah. really deliver economically. And, and the, right? the problem is, is that there is a very, very small middle class in Russia. So you have guys at the top and you have the poor. The poor are now going to be destitute and being sent to the front. So how long are they going to put up? This system currently in place looks much more like 1917 than any time in the, in the last hundred years. Wow. So Putinism is Tsar Nicholas II. Again, uh, you have a, an autocratic country that can't perform. Um, so, yeah. And, and, and what I... What concerns me uh, and what, what I think the, the media really isn't talking about is, of course, many people would like to see Putin go. I'd be happy to see him go. I'd be delighted to see him go. You'd be delighted to see him go. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm sure that you, uh, you listen to Julia Davis uh, uh, or you, 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 you're on Twitter and you're getting her uh, Russian media monitoring where they're showing essentially psychotic individuals uh, on, on Russian state TV uh, who are making the most outlandish, outlandish statements that make Putin actually look like a moderate. Um, and so what you have in Russia right now is you have Putin has, you know, pushed out a lot of the opponents 
to the war, people who, who believe the war was wrong in the first place and, and has suppressed that through, through law and, the, you know, through the law imprisoning people for 50, up to 50 years. But of course, there's an encouragement of pro-war pro and anti-Ukrainian propaganda. So what concerns me is you have people who are even, um, who are speaking out even more, even stronger than Putin has, uh, who are calling for all kinds of crazy measures. Uh, so what I see is when Putin goes, unfortunately, that the, 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 the replacement could possibly be worse than, than Putin himself. And that's something that the media just doesn't seem to be talking about. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, in any brutal authoritarian regime, um, anybody who is competent and poses an actual threat is eventually getting rid of. Uh, are there any moderates left? No. Uh, Russian liberalism uh, died with Boris Nemtsov. Uh, Russian liberals have been proven themselves to be incredibly ineffective uh, over the last 30 years. So where are those moderates going to come from? Uh, and this is a natural reaction. Who are the oppositionists in Russia? The oppositionists in Russia are the extreme right, right nationalists, who some of whom supported Ukraine in 2014, simply because that they believe that Ukraine was on the right path to, to national determination and things like that. This has been the greatest threat to Russian power, is, comes from two vectors. One is uh, the ultra-right nationalists, and the Islamicists, and uh, essentially the Islamic radicals have either been sent off to Syria or been destroyed in, in, uh, in numerous campaigns to de-radicalize Chechnya and elsewhere. So who's waiting in the wings to take over? My personal opinion on this is that Putin was a product of the intelligence service, he was a project. I was there in Moscow when he was appointed. Uh, perhaps you remember uh, Stepashin, the, the head of the National Committee, and he was also yeah. wanted to be uh, put forward as president. Uh, Primakov yeah. was put forward. So uh, it's clear that uh, between Berezovsky and the intelligence service, Putin was their project. At what point did the intelligence service see that he no longer serves the purpose of stability um, that he was put in to create. Um, so the internal threat, everybody is talking about oligarchs taking over, which is the most ridiculous thing of all. All Russian oligarchs come from Putin. Either you compromised yourself and bowed down to him, and, and that was the deal when he came in in, in 1999. He said, either you're, you're my creature or you're out. Uh, and that's it. They've all been pushed out. So... Anybody who has a dominant economic position owes everything only to Putin. Therefore, they're never going to rise up and, and give him a polonium milkshake. It's just not going to happen. So at what point does Putin no longer be a viable uh, project for the elites when they look at the destruction of their army and potentially the destruction of their country? Um, so there is that possibility that whoever comes in is going to be uh, either a much clever intelligence agency that's going to look at rebuilding slowly Russia to back to where it was, or, or it's going to be someone who's far more radically nationalistic and there's going to be a massive bloodbath within Russia while they find out who is to blame for this debacle. Um, fact is, Russia's 
the destruction of its army is going to mean pretty much the destruction of the current regime. What comes after, we don't know. Uh, and this is one of the things that we thought would happen in April uh, when the Battle of Kiev was lost, is that you would see the acceleration of the periphery in terms of regional uh, entities then starting to stand up. And of course, you have China in the background. Uh, Russia's real enemy is China. Um, and the fact that the Chinese have been playing the game now of visiting, they visited Kazakhstan yesterday, and making the point is that you don't need Russia. We'll guarantee your security. We'll be your best friend. Um, and it's in China's interest to see the breakup of Russia uh, becomes far easier to access the resources. So globally, what's going to happen? Destruction of Russian army, chaos in Russia, which may be much worse for the world uh, in terms of violence and things like that. But also you're mm -hmm. going to see collapse of Syria. You're going to see Africa uh, in uh, not only in a hunger state, but also in a massive wave of violence probably that's going to break out because there are no other regional actors to step in at the moment. And you'll see the rise of, say, Turkey, uh, the other hegemon, which is waiting in the wings. And Turkey's been playing a very interesting game between, between balancing between Ukraine and Russia. In the last couple of minutes that we have left, um, now that you've given us that optimistic prognosis for world peace, I wanted to uh, talk about a quote that I posted on my LinkedIn site a couple of days ago, and that was from one of the, the local councils in, in just outside of Moscow that have stated their objection and, and called for Putin's resignation, which in itself is, is almost unfathomable. And they say, in countries with regular turnover of power, people on average live better and longer than in those where the leader leaves office carried out in a box. I've, I've done a number of podcasts. I mean, one of the things I'm concerned about is the state of democratic backsliding around the world. And I've done a number of podcasts on that issue. And one of the things I say is that people need to make a more, that Democrats and people who believe in democracy have to make a more cogent argument for why democracies are so important in the world. Uh, why, it's, why it's so much better, for lack of a better term, or more, more effective to be a, a democratic state. What's your view on that, um, it, it, particularly in light of the fact that this argument is coming from uh, elected officials at the municipal level in Russia itself? Well, I, I mean, we don't know, we, because you would have to know who is behind this, right? Could be a loyal opposition, could be other people putting this out. But the fact is, yes, um, indeed, um, democracies are in retreat. Um, what do we see? Populism on the rise everywhere. Populist governments are incredibly bad at governing. Um, and so who does the Conservative Party of Canada elect? They elect a populist, <laughs> right? So this is the model of Orban and other people uh, who we see rise up is that there is a direct link between populism and authoritarianism, which we see. Right? So this has been one of the great dangers that, that exists is that these populist governments would are going to come, and especially because the degree of social cohesion is so eroded after two years of the pandemic. Pandemic was a minor bump in the road. Um, and what we see now is that uh, the fact that governments couldn't react to this minor bump in the road in an effective manner uh, doesn't predict what well what's going to to come for a large-scale either economic or environmental crisis to hit us. Bad, more bad times are definitely coming, but um, uh, unfortunately we have 
uh, governments who are unprepared to effectively govern. Right? You are. Sorry, yeah. go ahead, Don. No, so I mean, you just need to have the depth of experience and, and, and good managers. Uh, what we see around the world is you have two modes. You have populist governments, which don't really have experienced people who are in charge, and it's all about populism. Or you have these PR-type governments, which everything is focused on their own ratings, and, and PR uh, is the most important aspect of it, rather than actually governing. Uh, when we look at it in terms of experienced governing bodies that are that are able to weather a crisis, there's very few around the world. Uh, a couple of just wrap up questions. One of them just continuing on the same theme is um, arguably you are you are an international expert on anti-corruption um, and certainly New Brunswick's foremost a little joke there. Um, certainly it looks like um, Putin, who is thoroughly corrupt himself, of course, uh, has has really uh, been smacked in the face from his own level of corruption. Or another way of putting it is the regime is crumbling under the corruption of its own weight. Um, what are your views on that? Yes, uh, authoritarian regimes um, can actually be more effective in the uh, initial stage in terms of curbing corruption because they're able to put people in jail. Um, but long term, the, the, the golden rule in corruption is length of office term equals higher rates of corruption. You can actually show this by looking, for example, in the U.S. at states that limit terms. If you have term limits, you have less corruption. You can show this by the level of prosecution and everything else. Longer you are in office, the higher the amount of corruption is going to occur. The other side of it is length of term that people think they're going to be in office. Short-term thinking leads to massive thefts. Yeah, if you're Mr. 2% and you know you're going to be around for 20 years, it's fine. If you don't know if you're going to be there in six months, you're going to become Mr. 25%. Uh, again, you could look at numbers of regimes that have collapsed is when the, the level of uh, misappropriation of resources reaches about 25%. 17 is at the border of stability. If you get above 17, um, then you start to see the regime crumble because there just isn't enough uh, slop in the trough for the little piggies. So the elites will eventually rebel and then you'll have some sort of popular uprising. And this is proven around the world. So length of time in office and level of uh, access to resources to pilfer are two of the factors that, that uh, greatly impact in terms of a regime and, and corruption. And there hasn't been that much work done on it. People always talk about populist things, uh, about corruption. Is, corruption is bad and culture and whatever else. But the determining factor is simply about the amount of time uh, that you have in the resources that are available and how easy it is to access those resources. Uh, I'd like to get you back on for another episode just to talk about that issue. Um, yeah. we'll, we'll do that another time. One last question, uh, and we'll call this bonus content. So we'll we'll officially end the the podcast, and then we'll 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 go into the bonus round, which is to say, uh, because it's a bit of a preposterous question to ask you, um, assuming you would know the answer, um, who is responsible for the assassination of Daria Dugana? Who knows? Uh, uh, it was definitely an intelligence operation. Uh, one, I can guarantee it was no sort of uh, free Russian army 
or the absurd claims by the former member of parliament, uh, Ponomarov, who's uh, sitting in Kiev, who claimed this. It was definitely some sort of intelligence operation. Um, talking to people in the know, it's very doubtful that this was organized by the Ukrainians because what do they win from this? Nothing. Um, so there's no real tactical advantage to doing this. This was some sort of inside Russia deal. What its purpose or wh why they would do this belongs in many of the other mysteries. But I can tell you, if you look at the same, uh, the events over the last, uh, last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of defenestrations of people. People have been falling out of windows from Washington yes. to bloody Vostok. Yes. Yeah. So, to gotta, me, gotta it looks like a continu continuation, yes, of this defenestration is, is an old Eastern European tradition. But what we've seen is a greatly accelerated number of mysterious deaths over the last couple of weeks. Uh, like Churchill said about Soviet politics, it's like two dogs fighting under a carpet. You can see the ripples, but you don't really know what's going on under the carpet. That's a great place to end, Don. A lot of respect to you for your uh, uh, work. And, uh, you know, while I was worrying about Ukraine, you were out there doing something about it. You've got my profound respect for that. Um, Slava Ukraini. Thanks. I'm wearing my war of Ishivanka. This is my new Vishivanka, not my Canadian flag one. I, I picked up a new one in Kiev, so it's my official war Vishivanka. I'll save the Amazing. Canadian one for Victory Day. Perfect. Sounds Great. good. Thanks a lot, Jeff. It's been fun. Take care. Good to see you. All the best. Thanks. Hats off to Don Bowser. I really did the best I could to help the local community, uh, the local Ukrainian community, and, and those that, that left Ukraine during the illegal Russian invasion. But look at Don Bowser. Unbelievable. Leaves the comfort of his own home, goes to a war zone to help in any way he can or in any way he could. Hats off to Don. Uh, that is our podcast for today. Politics and Public Finance is produced and sponsored by Huge Impact Marketing. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, be sure to subscribe. I'm Jeff Dubrow. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time. Oh,